This episode is sponsored by Major, Lindsay, and Africa, the global navigators of legal careers. For more than 30 years, Major, Lindsay, and Africa has helped match law firms and corporations with exceptional legal talent. To find out more, go to mlaglobal.com. This episode is also sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. And I'm Casey Sullivan. Big Law Business is a podcast and website about the business of law that focuses on the largest U.S. law firms. On our website, biglawbusiness.com, we recently published an article by our colleague Gabe Friedman called Lawyer Who Helped Save Death Row Inmate Didn't Make Partner. The article is a look at how law firms give credit to attorneys and particularly associates who take on pro bono cases. In it, he tells the story of Brian Stolarz, who, while an associate at K&L Gates, took on a pro bono representation of a death row inmate in Texas. And that inmate, after many years of work, was exonerated. Uh, Brian recently published a book about his experience called Grace and Justice on Death Row. He's also calling into our studio in New York from Virginia. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me. So, Brian, when you started your legal career, uh, you were a public defender before you moved into big law. Not a common move. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that that is not, definitely not a common move. I was at the uh, the White Collar Defense Boutique in New York, Morvillo Abramowitz, and uh, really enjoyed working for those guys, some of the legends of the, the White Collar Bar, uh, Bob Morvillo and those guys. And I got an opportunity to work uh, at a, as a public defender for the Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn, and that was a dream job. I mean, I'd gone to law school in a lot of ways, uh, sort of with the <laughs> somewhat Pollyanna version of uh, why people go to law school, but just wanted to help people. And so public defense was sort of my dream job, and I did that for uh, just under two years. And uh, after that, you know, we had uh, a child and sort of wanted to have a, uh, a suburban life. So we moved from New York to Northern Virginia, and I put my hat in the ring to a number of big firms. And uh, K&L Gates uh, hired me as a associate in their securities enforcement uh, department, uh, mainly because of the Morvillo Abramowitz uh, experience, but also they were intrigued by the fact that I actually had real-life court experience, which you know younger associates they very seldom have at firms. Tell us about getting assigned this death row case and how it came about. You know, service to others and indigent defense has always been sort of at the core of what I like to do, but I always have to balance that with other work, of course. I was seeking out court-appointed criminal work in federal court, but that was, you know, sort of smaller felonies and sort of arcs of cases that you can you can manage. Um, but then one day, literally out of the blue, I got a call from Dave Case, the senior partner at Kano Gates, someone who uh, I respect and thought really highly of, had been there a long time, um, really good, solid guy and good, good reputation in the office, and literally got a call out of the blue saying, you want to work on a death penalty case pro bono. And that is sort of the, the, the dream pro bono assignment. Like when you go to big firms or when people are big firms, they, you know, they hear about all these high-impact pro bono cases that big firms do, and death penalty is one of them. And so I immediately said yes, and I believe I was asked because of my public defender experience. I was probably one of the few 
in the office who had sort of criminal criminal experience as opposed to maybe white collar criminal defense. I had you know the street crime, if you were background as a public defender. So yeah, I jumped on it right away. How do you go about looking for a pro bono case like that at a big law firm? Like, what was your mandate, and and you know how many cases come in until you find something like that? So. I- on that one, for the for the death penalty work, the arc of how that got to K and L was uh, Texas Defender Service, a uh, an amazing nonprofit that sort of screens cases and looks for big law firms to help out with cases that may have innocence aspects or um, intellectual disability aspects that need that need you know a team full of lawyers. That's how that got to us. Um, but other than that, there are you know sort of a almost a daily or routine set of sort of local organizations that send you know lists of cases uh, that that you could take and these are typically shorter and smaller cases i do a lot of work currently for the catholic charities legal network um, in which they have you know can you help someone out with a landlord tenant issue can you help someone out you know going to court for a bankruptcy can you help someone out they're being sued by you know some commercial entity so those are smaller and easier, but it's even though they're smaller, they're very important to those people. So I'd done a few of those, and you know had not sought out anything large <laughs> like a death penalty case, um, and that sort of came to me through Dave and Texas Defenders. Tell us about Dwayne Brown's case. What had he been convicted of? What was the status of the case? So in April of uh, 2003, a uh, very high profile and very sad and tragic double murder occurred. In South Houston, uh, it was at a botched robbery at a check cashing location. Uh, it was supposed to be an inside job, actually. Uh, one of the tellers knew one of the perpetrators, um, but then she got cold feet, and the woman who replaced her that day, Alfredia Jones, was murdered, as well as Officer Charles Clark, a decorated veteran of the Houston Police Department, who showed up at the scene to respond, was murdered. Very high profile, as I say, very tragic and very sad. And I say in all my speeches, and I and I do this, I say prayers for their family because it's an absolutely tragic case. It should never have happened. A truck driver drove by and saw three people, three men getting into a car. And Dwayne was ultimately convicted of murdering Officer Charles Clark in October of 2005 and was sentenced to death around that same time in October 2005. And... Our job was habeas corpus counsel, and for those who don't know what that means, I mean it's uh, it's not a direct appeal. A direct appeal is anything that happened sort of in the four corners of the case. A uh, habeas corpus is really truly a, almost a reinvestigation or just a reanalysis of everything to make sure that there's nothing outstanding. You know, factually or typically, you hear about this in connection with DNA when there's DNA testing done and re-brought to the court. It's usually brought under a habeas corpus brief um, to show so newly found evidence of innocence or, or other things. So that was our job, and it was a massive undertaking. When did you realize how big this job was? I don't think that you got into this or that K&L Gates assigned it to you thinking you were going to, this was going to be your full-time job. So, and what was that balance and what did you think the representation was going to be or what did K&L Gates think it would be and what did it end up being? Yeah, that is, that is the question, right? That is a, um, there's very little chance that I or the firm knew just how much it was going to be when we agreed to take it. Um, I mean, we, the firm had not, to my knowledge, done a death penalty case of this kind before. We had done 
we had another case in the office, but it was just on intellectual disability. So it was challenging the gentleman's IQ that the state had given him and sort of fighting that. So that was mostly brief-based, mostly expert-based. But this turned out to be a full-blown innocence investigation, which I think nobody was thinking about or ready for, and no one quite knew just how much time it would take to sort of take on this high-profile case in Texas. Um, and yeah, the the balance, you know, I, I still to this day, I still... I, I wish now that the at the front end say, hey, to the firm, this this looks like it might be a lot of work. Um, can we make sure that you know this doesn't you know impact my you know my potential for partner, or could it doesn't impact my you know billable hours? Because let it be known, I I did not go to that law firm to seek a big pro bono case and spend all my time on it. I mean, I understand how law firms work. Um, I'm in one now, obviously. And, you know, I understand that billable hours are important and the people that, you know, you're representing, you know, need lawyers and need, you know, people to be spending time on it. So I, the balance at the end of the day became impossible, but I, and I wish I would have sort of done it better on the front end to make sure that everybody was on the same page about just what this undertaking was going to be. So do you have a sense of what your, what the hours were you were putting in on this versus other cases? Yeah. So I, when I, I'd been interviewed by Gabe, I told him that I'd estimated, you know, I think we had, I forgot what the benchmark was. I think it was 1950, but I'm not totally sure for billable hours per year. And I, it was towards the, when the Brown case was, was, was heavy, I, I can estimate it was probably 1400 billable, 500 on Brown, um, or around that sort of range, whether it's 15 and 400 or right around that, that age, that stage. And, you know, one of the failings that I, you know, sort of I wish it was done better was I only got credit for 50 hours of those pro bono hours towards my billable um, mandate for the year for bonus pool, you know, and for other things. And, you know, to their credit, they did change that policy for Casey Kaplan, who took over the case after I left. Um, but it didn't obviously help me. And I just, I kind of wish that that was different because then I probably would have been, you know, eligible for bonuses or just at least, you know, been on sort of a more traditional track. But I think that the 50 hour cap, you know, sort of really ended up harming me. So you went like way over the cap. It was at like 1400 hours, you said. Um, and that's like, I, I feel I, I, from my conversations with Gabe, that's pretty in keeping with like the industry norm in terms of how other firms manage themselves. There was a report from the National Association for Law Placement um, that showed that 83% of law firms with at least 700 lawyers um, said that pro bono hours were equivalent to billable hours for bonus purposes. However, um, the maximum number of pro bono hours um, is usually between 25 and 100. Um, so you can only like, you know, put in a threshold number of hours to count, to have that credit um, turn into credited work that'll end up um, 
you'll see that in your bonus. Right. Where personally did you see the balance? You must have realized this might affect your trajectory at that firm. And you also recognized, I I know I've heard you speak and I've I've read about enough about the accounts of you and your relationship with Dwayne, that how how close you felt with him and how how devoted you were to this case. How did you do the personal balance of, I'm going to take on more of this. I'm going to do everything I can for this. You know, tell me about that. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's what makes, you know, the story and the book, you know, and my speeches that I give really unique because I truly love the man. And, you know, I've represented thousands of guys as a public defender and currently. And although I work hard for everybody, I give them all, you know, zealous representation, guilty, innocent, anywhere in between. There was something uniquely sort of wonderful about our relationship. And to that end, guys, I, I had to say this, I almost didn't care about what was going to happen to me because I felt like the mission of Dwayne and the mission of, you know, helping one other man was worth my career, you know, not to sound too cheesy, but sort of worth my life. I mean, I like, you know, I almost feel like I've already hit the sort of pinnacle of my career at 42. (laughs) I kind of want to retire. But yeah, so because of that, and then you overlay that with sort of my personal background of growing up sort of lower middle class, Northern New Jersey, father was a carpenter. Money was really never sort of something that drove me um, and still doesn't currently. Um, I still drive the same old, you know, truck that I've had for years and, you know, have three or four suits. But the, it, so the fact that you know, that was happening sort of, it was in, in keeping with sort of my goals and my sort of thoughts about what was a success in life. And for example, when I was in on bonus day, when there's an associate uh, who turned to me and said, hey, what'd you get? And I said, nothing. And he or she, I don't say who it is because I'm not trying to name any names because it's not the point of this. Um, he or she said, well, I got 60000 I said, well, good for you. And they said, I'm going to get a new car. I was like, great. <laughs> Enjoy it. My car runs just fine. Um, and so I, it became something that, you know, that didn't, at the end of the day, it didn't, it's not what drove me. But then the undercurrent of all that was I still had a young family to support. And so that balance became really dangerous because, you know, I think some people may not have taken on this risk in this assignment because literally guys, my middle child was born probably two weeks. I think it was 11 or 12 days before I got this assignment. And some people would say, you know what? (laughs) I got enough on my my plate with a three-year-old and a newborn and a mortgage and law school loans and everything else. I think I ought to just focus on, you know, billable work and not take this on. And so I think a lot of people would have said no. And people ask me, would I say no, knowing what I know now? And obviously the answer is no, because um, Dwayne's free and happy. And, you know, I'm at a really good place, you know, you know, personally and emotionally. Casey has some good... Uh, comments from who we posted this on Facebook. Right. And I think that's a, we had, um, we, we posted this Gabe's on a story. group. Yeah. Gabe, we posted Gabe's story on a Facebook group called lawyers of the left, which yeah. has more than 115,000 members. The last time I checked, um, and it triggered a discussion in the comment section. There were dozens of comments. Um, the first one started it off like this. Um, the commenter said, I honestly cannot blame firms like this. 
firms are money-making entities. Mr. Stolarz seems to readily admit that he was putting in insufficient billable hours due to his pro bono commitments. He was using the firm's money and resources to do free legal work and not putting in the billables to justify the expenses associated with him. I can't hold it against the firm for not wanting to promote him. Um, and that ended up igniting a whole back and forth between you know what responsibility these big law firms have in taking these cases on and supporting the associates um, uh, who, who do the labor. Um, and so... You know, that sort of brings us around to the question of, you know, what responsibility do you feel like the, the, the law firm should have had? Like, are there any lessons that we can take away from this? Um, you know, what would what do you feel could have been done differently? Yeah, I mean, and you know that that commenter, you know, I, I totally understand his or her point as well, and I'm I remain grateful, despite the fact that you know what happened to me financially there and not making partner. I remain grateful to K and L Gates, and and somewhat conflictedly grateful because I they gave me the case of my life and the case of my career and the case of the lives and careers of the many associates who worked on the case who I'm proud to be, you know, on the Brown team with. Um, but if you're going to take on a case like this, you have to have sort of the institutional sort of um, structure to make sure that the people that are doing the work are at, at a minimum protected. I say in the book, I didn't want, you know, I didn't want a parade or an award or, you know, anything else. I just didn't want to feel so marginalized. And at the end of my time there, I did. You know, a buddy of mine works at another big law firm, and he would tell me that quarterly they'd have this party, a pro bono party, in which all the, the senior partners who sort of founded the firm would assemble and thank people for doing certain pro bono work and would give them you know, either like a gift card or a award or something like that. And I said, wow, <laughs> that sounds pretty good to me. I've been, but again, that's not why I did it. But there has to be, I think, some institutional controls if you're going to take on a big, massive case like this. But I also think there's sort of a bigger question here, which is partially why I put this, you know, the chapters about big firms in the book. It's not to be referendum on K&L Gates at all, because again, I said I'm grateful, <laughs> grateful to them at the end of the day. It's what is their role and responsibility? Because here we have firms with, you know, Ivy League ed educated folks with Supreme Court clerkships and the, some of the smarter lawyers in the country. And isn't it probably part of their duty to give back to people who can't afford lawyers? And so that raises the bigger question of what is their obligation? I mean, a billion dollar entities, you know, what is their obligation to help help out folks who can't afford lawyers? I mean, Every time I go to a bar meeting or, you know, the, any lawyer magazine that I get, like, there's always, we need better commitment to pro bono. And, you know, it's a, it's a push and pull because, although I think there's some big firms that do it right from some of the anecdotal uh, talking that I've done with some of my friends, you know, some firms are in it to make money. That's fine, too, because... <laughs> they're not a nonprofit, <laughs> so they're a yeah. It, it, it's a tough question, I'm, and I'm glad it sparked, you know, 
comments and discussions because that's what it's meant to do. That's what that's why I put it out there for so people to sort of discuss. What happened when you left KNL Gates? I know you you have the relationship with Dwayne. Did, did you continue to represent him in any way? Did KNL keep the representation going? Yeah. So um, KNL did keep it going. Uh, Casey Kaplan, who I'm forever a brother in brown with and love like a brother, took the case on and spent a lot of time with me to make sure he could, you know, get get the facts and move forward. And other attorneys, uh, Bethany Benitez, Chris Tate, Megan Whistler, other lawyers stepped up to help. I remained sort of as a consultant at my at my next firm because that firm simply couldn't take on the large case like this. And so at, at one point, at that point, it was kind of heartbreaking in a way because I had to choose you know, my own personal sort of... Uh, you know, financial and other sanity <laughs> to go to a different law firm, even though I really didn't want to lose, you know, day-to-day representation of Dwayne's case. But because I knew the facts better than anybody else, and because I've been on it for so long and sort of was sort of all in for so many years, that I was I was involved in a lot of the sort of, you know, the strategies going forward. And now I represent him again uh, for the civil aspect, for the compensation aspect. My current law firm represents him for the civil compensation that we're working on. Um, what is the status of that? So there's uh, two methods to get compensation. One is a direct petition to the state uh, through the, to the comptroller, uh, and another is uh, a federal civil lawsuit under uh, 1983, civil rights action. Uh, we are The first petition we did to the comptroller was unsuccessful. We are uh, currently... Um, strategizing about an amended petition. If that doesn't work, then we'll sue in federal court um, with the help of some Houston lawyers because it's cases based in Houston and I'm here. But my firm has given me the sort of green light to sort of finalize the justice in this case and get the man uh, compensated for the time he spent. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're currently um, analyzing all avenues for that. To a large degree, we focused on pro bono, but there was one key piece of evidence uh, for his alibi. Were you still representing him when that came through? And can you tell us what that was and what happened? Yeah, so Dwayne will tell you if he was on this phone and if you met him at a you know speech, he would tell you the same thing he told me the first day that I saw him, which was that at the time of the murders, he was home at his girlfriend's apartment and that right around the time of the murders, he made a phone call to his girlfriend's workplace. And so, you know, the phone call and the phone records to show were always sort of a critical piece of the case here. In fact, the critical piece of the case, because there's never any science that connected Dwayne to this, never any CSI type stuff you see on TV or fingerprints or, you know, DNA or anything like that. And so, you know, as a sideline, you know, his alibi was, that's what it was. And so, I didn't really need to go see him as much as I did, but I did because I wanted to let him know there was someone out there that sort of cared for him and loved him and really wanted to work hard for him. But the search for that phone record was incredibly challenging. Um, His trial lawyer didn't seek it, um, claiming that uh, the phone company didn't didn't keep landline phone records. Um, the, we subpoenaed the phone company late. You know, by the time we got on the case, it was, the document had been purged apparently, and so we subpoenaed the DA, subpoenaed the cops, nothing, and we were getting pretty frustrated and depressed. And it was probably at the pinnacle of my depression. And then Casey, who had taken the case over from me, 
and Megan were working with a um, an expert to try to work on the what they had cell tower evidence. So one of the co-defendants had a cell phone, and so they had issued some discovery and trying to get some more documents. And the judge basically told the DA, "Hey, you know, make sure that they have everything that that you all have." And then in May of 2013, we got an email that is still one of the most remarkably written emails I've ever seen, in which the DA tells the judge and Casey that the homicide detective in charge of the case, who was incidentally married to a a DA, um, found a box of documents related to the Brown case while spring cleaning his garage. Literally, guys, the email says, while spring cleaning his garage. And I show that email when I give speeches because, you know, a document that was found while spring cleaning a a garage sets a man free. It's crazy. So they send the documents to Megan Whistler in Dallas, in the Dallas office of K&L. And literally in the middle of that box, like a, you know, golden needle in a haystack is the phone record, the landline phone record showing that he was at that home. And, you know, to the DA's credit, after they got that, after they, after we, you know, we saw it and got back to them, they they agreed to a new trial without a hearing, which is pretty unprecedented in Texas. And, and then the judge agreed with that. And guys, here's probably one of the worst parts of this case. The judge agreed and said, "Hey, hurry up, let's have a new trial because you know this this evidence was exculpatory, was not turned over, his rights were violated. Let's have a new trial." And the court of criminal appeals had to agree with that because that's how jurisdictionally it worked in Texas. And the court of criminal appeals waited 17 months to do that. And those 17 months were terrible because we had the document that showed he was home, that showed he didn't do it, but we had to wait 17 more months for the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to grant and formally adopt the trial court's findings and actually get him the new trial. And we had found out through sort of channels in Houston that uh, the reason why they weren't is because there was an election and they were never going to grant a new trial in an election year. And so literally on November 4th of 2014, the judges on the court reelected and the next morning (laughs) the court issued a two-page per curiam opinion, granting him his new trial and formally vacating his, uh, his conviction. And then eight months later, the DA in Harris County, you know, did what we all had hoped and thought and believed she should do and dismissed the case. And then he walked out June 8th of 2015. Wow. Um, so, so how has your uh, book been received as, and have you gotten any feedback on Gabe's story? Yeah, um, you know, I, I sort of wrote the book as a as a catharsis because I'd come back from Texas and I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I couldn't believe the level of injustice. And so I wrote it as I was going because I kind of knew it was the case in my life and I knew that if I didn't write it down, I wouldn't remember it. Um, then I got the help of a, an amazing agent, Ron Goldfarb, who's a, a lawyer himself and sort of dedicated to justice. And he helped me sort of navigate the process and hooked me up with a great editor, Jeff Morley. And the book um, came out October 25th. Um, it made the Washington Post bestseller list for one week, which <laughs> one, one week's enough for me. Um, I was number 10 and Bruce Springsteen was number three, which I thought was kind of cool for my Jersey family. They were really kind of they kind of like that, and yeah, it's been it's been really really well received on 
you know, on on the legal basis, on the religious aspects of it, on the sort of deeply personal aspects of it. Um, and I uh, spoke at Politics and Prose last Friday, which is sort of a bucket list dream come true for me because it's I take my wife on dates there, and sort of as a book nerd, Politics and Prose was like the best place to sort of be an author. Um, but yeah, I just sort of feel like it's all just an amazing time. But honestly, I'd give it all away. I'd give every single book sale and every single scrap of paper away just to make sure that he's out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what's most important to me, and we stay in close touch. He's doing really great. He he looks forward, doesn't look back. Um, and so I'm really, really proud of him for being sort of as composed and graceful as he is. You also mentioned that there was a change in policy at KNL Gates um, in terms of its pro bono, how it treats its pro bono hours. Uh, what was that and how? what prompted that? Do you know? Well, the, the policy was changed where... The 50 hours that was credited per year was uh, elevated to hour-for-hour credit. Um, So Casey, who took over the case from me, received the benefit of that. Actually, I don't know what that meant practically for him. I assume that meant that he maybe had received a bonus. I really, I haven't talked to him about that aspect. But yeah, so now hour for hour credit um, was, was given, and that's to their credit. That's to that firm's credit. And I'm grateful that they made that change. What I, I was never told it was specifically because of this case, but my, my case was probably the outlier that sort of spurred this on. But nevertheless, I'm happy that that's the way it is for future people who decide to take on this work. And, you know, it goes over like certain thresholds. I, I, I don't think they'll be taking a lot of death penalty work in the future. Um, but if they do, at least I know the person who'll take it can get hour for hour credit. So now you're a lawyer at LeClaire Ryan. What would you do if a case like this came your way again? <laughs> uh, given where I am now, um, you know, I get a you lot. Know, of- and I can, you can punt on that. What, I guess what advice do you have really for, for people that might be in your position? Because I think that's, you know, it's not a totally fair question, obviously. But <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it is an interesting debate because I think it's a lawyer's duty to do pro bono work and help out others who can't afford lawyers. That goes back to sort of my, you know, Catholic roots and service other stuff. But I understand when people tell me that, hey, I'm in this business to make money. I'm not in this business to, to, help, to help, help people out. I mean, one person in the book I say, I say he, she, again, because I don't want to identify the person, but said that he or she was proud. They'd never done an hour of pro bono work. And other partners would sort of nod their head. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, but people have the right to, <laughs> to feel that way. I mean, so, but the, the advice I give to folks now is I sort of, I say, do it. But, you know, make sure that everybody's on the same page if, you know, cases get out of hand and you got to do a lot of hours on it and to tread carefully. And that's kind of a sad thing. But that's what I tell folks is, yeah, I mean, don't take on, you know, 500 hour per year case um, unless, you know, the firm is totally on board, unless, you know, you have everything that you feel like you're comfortable. But here's sort of the other part of this is I think pro bono actually not only is good for you know, lawyers giving back, but it also is a great training experience. And tra- you know, and I, I think that's actually maybe a little lost in the in the discussion, which is, you know, I used to take junior lawyers with me to federal criminal cases, and in fact, we did we did a trial, and I had two junior associates sit second chair with me, 
And, you know, how many junior associates of big firms can say that they sat second chair at a federal criminal trial and they got to see crosses, directs, openings, closing, jury instructions, the whole deal. And so that trained them really well. And they told me that that was like one of the greatest experiences they've ever had. And so there is sort of an aspect of this is done right. If the firm has a good institutional sort of structure that they could train up good young lawyers, too, while still doing good. So I think there's a way to do it. Um, but to take on another case like this, me personally, I don't think I can. This the Brown case took way too much out of me emotionally. And I, I, it kind of breaks my heart because I get a lot of calls and letters now from folks who know of this case and or have read the book or read some of the media pieces. And I make sure that they get referred to the right organizations that have lawyers or have the access to volunteer lawyers. But I don't think I could do another one. Brian's book, Grace and Justice on Death Row, is available on Amazon. Gabe's article about Brian and how pro bono hours are credited in Big Law is up on biglawbusiness.com. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com if you'd like to contact us. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at Big Law Biz. Follow Brian on Twitter at Brian Stolarz, S-T-O-L-A-R-Z. Follow Casey at Casey underscore Big Law. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Block NYC. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. 